Good morning, church. Would you please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We began our study last week, Luke chapter 1, looking at the preface to Luke, the first four verses this morning. We'll look at that next pericope. That's that section where it's subdivided by headings in your Bible. It's going to be verses 5 through 25. And if you'll read along with me this morning, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. However, remember that these are the words of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands before God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And it happened that when the days of his priestly service were fulfilled, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we always do, I'll begin 
the sermon this morning asking God's blessing on our time. Father, the chorus of that last psalm where we call together and say to those around us, oh, won't you come and magnify the Lord with me? That's the heart of every one of us when we come on Sunday morning to worship together with the saints. It's our heart when we sing. It's our heart when we pray. It's on the heart of every true Christian at every point during the service. And at this time too, Lord, we want the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. We want your name, Father, to be lifted high. So would you do that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Arrest our hearts through the efficacy of your word. And bring us into conformity to the likeness of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in one of those conversations where you're trying as best you can to recount this event that happened, this riveting tale, this exciting moment in your life. You want it to have the same impact on your hearers as it did when you witnessed it. You know, certain things are typical when you're telling a story like this. Your, your voice gets a little elevated. Your pulse goes up. The tempo of your words begins to exceed the verbal speed limit, if you will. And then someone, it's usually your spouse, will stop you mid-sentence right when you're getting to the good part. And they'll say, hang on a sec, I think you left a detail out. Can we go back and start at that beginning so we don't leave that detail out? And it's frustrating, isn't it? Starting at the wrong place can ruin a good drama. You could start at, say, episode four and hope to keep the audience's attention, but they'll probably just end up asking you for the prequels and in telling those, you'll probably ruin the whole story anyway. <laughs> now Luke wasn't going to make this mistake with Theophilus. He was not going to be caught with a confused patron. Luke backs all the way up to B.C., which regardless of what historical revisionists today say, will always mean before Christ. And he begins with a birth announcement. And not Jesus' birth announcement either. This is important for at least two reasons. The first has to do with fulfillment. The book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, concludes with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children... And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and I will strike the land with a curse. Now God already said when he would come back on stage. And Luke is, in effect, by beginning here in the story with the announcement of John's birth, showing Theophilus the, the play script, as it were, and saying, this is the beginning of Act 2. 
This is when the next part of the play begins. Interestingly enough, this prophecy from Malachi was also the last to be delivered. Additionally, it is, as I mentioned earlier, canonically the last book of the Old Testament. And this brings us to the second reason that Luke's starting point is significant. Since the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon and the writings of Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the minor prophets, including Malachi, there has been no word from Yahweh at all. No word from Yahweh to His covenant people. Not even one word for over 400 years. Dear Theophilus, you who are beloved of God, how do you know for sure that you are believing and walking in the true revelation of the one God of the universe? Because I can show you the exact moment after 400 years when God started talking again. That's why he begins here. That's why he starts with the announcement of John the Baptist. Now, we'll get to that exact moment when God began speaking through the angel in just a minute in the text. But first, Luke sets a historical stage for us. He tells us in verse 5 that this takes place, he's beginning during the days of King Herod, Herod king of Judea. This is also known as Herod the Great. He's a Roman puppet king ruling, you might say, over Palestine and some of the surrounding territories. He was appointed by Mark Anthony and reigned from 37 BC to 4 AD. And he was also, just to be frank, a conceited tyrant. Famous for his building projects, he wanted people not to remember what they represented but him. He's responsible for the full renovation of the second temple, also cleverly named Herod's Temple. He's also responsible for having members of his own family murdered for trying to usurp him. And he's also responsible for the slaughter of the innocents recorded in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Herod envisioned himself as the fulfillment of the coming Davidic king that was promised in the Old Testament. Though he was a puppet king of Rome, though he wasn't really a ruler, having to pay all the taxes and in subjugation to Roman rule, Herod thought, this is the way that God's going to bring me to power, and I will be the savior of all the Israelite people. That title, however, would end up going to a little baby born in a cattle stall toward the very end of Herod's reign. Herod was a wicked man, but as you probably heard before, rulers are often a reflection of the people that they rule. R.C. Sproul summarizes the situation in these words. He says, this was not a time of revival or religious zeal, this time when John the Baptist came on the scene. Herod was not one who would call his people back to godliness. He was only interested in building monuments to himself. Sproul goes on to say, Some people of Israel were faithful. They remembered the promises God made to their ancestors. They still celebrated the Passover. They celebrated the other annual festivals. 
as well as many religious traditions. But after 400 years of waiting for God to speak, many had just given up and become secularists. There's really no king in Israel, so why don't we just do what we want in our own eyes? 400 years since God had communicated with His people. That's a long time. But in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, a rule for good Bible study. Pay attention to names. Particularly when it comes with this formula, where Luke says, There was a priest and his name was Zechariah. He had a wife and her name was Elizabeth. This first sentence is packed with meaning. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out the names Zechariah and Elizabeth and I'm going to read the verse to you again with the meaning of their names instead of their names. This is a transliteration. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named the Lord Remembers. And he had a wife, and her name was Promise of God. In those days, when the people of God were wandering aimlessly under the subjugation of Roman rule and the stringent control of a false king, there were two people who got married, and together their names mean Yahweh remembers His promises. If I'm Theophilus and I'm reading this, I'm jumping up and down for joy, and I'm not even past the opening verse. Luke shares three important things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He gives them to us in quick succession. Number one, they were both of the Aaronic line. Zechariah was also a priest. That's mentioned in in the text. They were both righteous in the sight of God, blameless in their keeping of the commandments of the law. Now, to be clear, Luke is not saying here that they're justified before the Lord because of their good deeds. He's not saying that they had inwardly been declared righteousness through their outward good works, but they had, for all of their lives, remembered God and kept covenant by obeying the law of Moses. That was true. Lastly, in spite of their ancestral connections and their obedience, their near-perfect obedience, it seems, they were childless. And this was a huge blow to a Jewish family, especially to a priest like Zechariah, who would have been expected. He's blessed by God. He ought to be ha- he had to have a whole litter of kids. And we're even given the reason in the text, too. Luke says that Elizabeth's womb was barren. Whether or not she knew it, we don't know. But Luke tells us that it was her womb that was not productive. At least, not yet. How often do you think this couple was tempted with despondency? How often were they given to sullenness? How often to despair? For those of you this morning who are sitting in the pew listening to me and you feel like one of God's afterthoughts, maybe even forsaken, 
You feel like you've prayed that prayer for that lost son or daughter one too many times? You've been rejected too many times in that hoped-for relationship? That too much of your life has passed for God for use you, for God's going to use you for anything significant in the future? Or that your hopes for ch children or healing will never be realized? Now you must repent. There's no way to read this and hold on to the belief that God forgets about His people. Your current sad situation is just the kind of setup that God loves to tell His stories. Beloved, this ought to get us out of bed every morning with a smile on our faces, grabbing a copy of God's Word so that we can hear afresh from Him again. Because God never forgets and He always makes good on His promises. He's heard every prayer though you've probably forgotten all of them. His silence is not confirmation of rejection, but a firing of faith in you worth more than gold. Stop using your humdrum life as an excuse to give up and quit on God. Zachariah and Elizabeth were without child, both advanced in years. Her childbearing years are long gone at this point anyway. They may have even given up on praying for a baby a long time ago when she was no longer able to carry a child. And what were they doing? What, what does Luke say to us about them? They were honoring God, walking blamelessly before Yahweh, living according to His commandments. Stop making excuses for disobedience. He doesn't see me anyway. Stop scorning prayer. He never answers my prayers anyway. 400 years of silence, and where were God's eyes? On His covenant children on his covenant children, and he didn't even blink. Stop treating your conversations with covenant members here or family members or friends as though they're the ones who are going to be able to get you out of the mess that you feel like you're currently in. You feel needy? That's good. Take your neediness to God. Pursue him. Trust him. Trust his timing. If you can hear my words right now, rest assured that our God remembers His people and He remembers His promises. Now in the next section of text, verses 8 to 17, Luke tells us in what way Yahweh began speaking again. How was Zechariah remembered? How was his longing fulfilled, his prayer answered? Verses 8 through 10. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. This is a significant event in Zechariah's life. This, this took place twice daily outside of the temple. A priest was to enter and burn incense for either the morning or the evening sacrifices. Priests were chosen first by division, and there were 24 of those. Abijah is the eighth. Those are all outlined in 1 Chronicles 24, if you're interested in looking more into those divisions. And then the lot was cast for which man in that particular division would serve. Now this might have sounded like a frequent occurrence, but it's estimated that at this time, at the time that Zechariah finally got an opportunity to serve in his old age, 
there are around 18,000 priests waiting in line to go into the temple. A priest would only perform this duty once in his entire life, and it was the highest honor he got. And Zechariah had had to wait until he was an old man. While everyone else stood outside, an angel appeared inside, standing to the right side, that's the side of favor, next to the altar. And the greeting that the angel gives follows a typical angel calling and people responding formula. There's a sudden appearance. The recipient of the visit is troubled in their heart. And then they get seized or gripped by fear. And then the angel says the phrase, do not be afraid. It's very typical. All through the Bible we get this formula. And the angel informs him in verse 13 of seven different things. He says, starting in verse 13, God has heard your prayer. Elizabeth will have a son. His name is to be John. Remember, names are important. John means Yahweh has been gracious. In verse 14, you and many others will rejoice. In verse 15, he will be great in God's sight. Also in verse 15, like most Baptists, he will not touch any alcohol. Now it's unclear whether or not John was considered a Nazarite. All the elements of the Nazarite vow are not there, but he is to not touch any wine or beer. Most significantly, in verse 15, the third person of the Trinity would come and inhabit him while he's in his mother's uterus. Now this all seems pretty straightforward, but I want you to go all the way back up to the first point. The angel said in verse 13, your prayer has been heard. And I asked the question, well, what prayer? Was he in the temple praying for a baby at this moment? Now that's very doubtful. The evening prayer would have revolved around the idea of the redemption of Israel. It was almost canned. The priest would go in and recite this prayer, and it had to do with the theme of, Lord, come and redeem your people. And also, Zechariah's reply in verse 18 implies that a miraculous conception wasn't on his radar. But in the infinite wisdom of the eternal mind, God is tackling two issues at one time. He's killing two stones with one bird. Or, if that violent language triggers you, he's feeding two birds with one scone. There's no doubt that this godly couple had prayed many years for children. And God never forgot those prayers. It was also time for the grand valet of the king of kings to roll out the red carpet to prepare the way for Jesus. The time of salvation of God's people had come. So God answers two prayers in one. And he says, your son will be named. Yahweh has been gracious. Very gracious indeed. Gracious for keeping Elizabeth barren for all of those years. For holding off on answering their prayers together for a child. For turning the lot away from Zechariah time after time after time when it was his division's turn to serve. None of those delays on God's part was a sign that they lacked his favor. 
None of them was. All, every time, he said, wait, wait, not yet, not now, not your turn to serve. I'm not going to answer that prayer just yet. All of that was grace. All of it was grace. Some of you may recognize the name Carl Fredrickson. He's the main character from Pixar's movie, Up. You know, that cranky, impatient, get-off-my-lawn widower. He begins his adventures where he's only out to help himself. I love the scene where he receives a knock at his door. You know how it goes. Good afternoon. My name is Russell, and I am a wilderness explorer. So on and so forth. No matter what Russell asks of him, Mr. Fredrickson says no, and eventually just slams the door in his face. I think this is the way many Christians view their God. I can ask, but what's the point? He just says no. Have you considered that God's slowness to answer your prayer, and notice I said slow, not no, could be his way of bringing a better solution than you could have possibly conceived. The Lord is not slow about his promise, Peter says, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If you come to Wednesday night prayer meeting, we encourage you all to be here. We've been praying for Haddock and Son's tree service for some months now. And God didn't seem to be in a hurry to answer our prayer to bless and grow Dustin's business. But this past week, he sent what could have been a tornado or a mesocyclone or something through West Knoxville, damaging many homes and knocking down thousands of trees. Now, Dustin has more work than he can handle. And there are people all over Knoxville who were thinking about the meaning of life in eternity that weren't before. And now they have a Christian man coming to their houses to help them put their lives back together. God writes the best stories. Look at verse 16 with me. The angel says to Zechariah, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah, being a good priest and study of God's word, would not have missed the heavy allusion to the final prophecy of Malachi that I read during the introduction. Luke has brought Theopolis to this point in the story to show that John's birth is the linchpin that holds... The Old Testament to the New. That connects the old revelation to the revelation that God was bringing. R.C. Sproul again explains, The angel's announcement links the last promise of the Old Testament with the first promise of the New. Zechariah was given the message that he and his wife would be parents of the prophet who would announce the coming Messiah. John would do this, it says in verse 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now Luke isn't equating the two men or, or saying necessarily that Elijah would be reincarnated in John. After all, John the Baptist never performed any miracles that we know of. Rather, he was filled with the prophetic call to repentance. A message that Elijah spoke of very frequently to Old Testament Israel. And 
John's message, like Elijah's, would be loaded with power. Think of preaching that you've heard in the past that's filled with a real potency, that's filled with a real power. The kind of preaching that says youth ministry is so unbiblical. And everybody starts applauding. Yes. Amen. And then the preacher says, why are you clapping? This is a youth conference. I'm talking to you. You probably all heard that sermon by Brother Paul Washer. That's the kind of powerful preaching, probably beyond that, that Luke is describing here, that Malachi prophesied about. But the power wasn't the point of John's ministry. The point was Israel's turning. In verse 16, turning many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. In verse 17, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. And then turning the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Consider these last two for just a moment. Repentance, the repentance that John was preaching, was intended to restore horizontal relationships, fathers and children, and then it was intended to restore vertical relationships, disobedient people coming back to the obedience that God requires, righteousness that pleases Him. Now, apart from Christ and the cross, there can be no atonement. But through this ministry of turns, John would bring the people back to the law and ultimately to the greatest commandment, the one that Jesus would focus on again and again in His ministry. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical relationships, horizontal relationships. That's what John was calling them back to. I might say by way of application that every home in this church wants Christ for all of its members. Every Christian home wants Christ in His fullness in the hearts of every one of the family members. We want Jesus to be prized in every heart. His name heralded from each tongue. His gospel bearing fruit in each mind and head and set of hands. Let me ask you, church, are you convinced that repentance prepares the way for this and more in your home? Listen to the testimony of Paul's churches who had turned when the warning of repentance came. He told the church in Colossae, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Did you see that? Both a vertical restoration, horizontal restoration. He said the same in his brief letter to Philemon. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Because I heard of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Again, the vertical and horizontal restoration. And from the letter of Ephesians. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Church, I ask you this question. Is your home filled with this kind of love? With this kind of spirit? With this kind of restoration? in your relationships, one to another, and to God. If not, it could be that you need to repent of half-hearted attempts at repentance. When a father takes his child away for discipline, 
and then calls them to repentance, and they respond with a pucker-faced, yes, sir. That ain't repentance. The discipline isn't over. When a husband, using few words and biblical sin language, addresses a wife about some transgression, and she responds with, I hear you, but you did X to provoke me. Or, I think you're too easily offended when you say stuff like this. She may have mentally assented to the idea of repentance, to what it looks like, but is repentance really born fruit in her heart? And of course, it could go both ways. Fathers, let me ask you, are you setting an example of true and deep repentance in your own home? First and foremost, in private to God, and then publicly, in front of your wife and kids, confessing things out loud to them. Wives, are you much more interested in getting the log out of your own eye, being completely restored from your own sin, so that you can see clearly to do what mothers and wives do best, with love and wisdom, tend to the needs of their husbands and children? Or are you interested in being right? Young ones, both Christian and lost. Do you leave discipline sessions with your parents in a rage? Do you lie about being truly repentant, hoping that mom and dad won't notice the bitter anger that you feel towards them or God in your heart? Would you consider repenting right now of this and then going and telling your mom and dad? Paul Washer once said, It is an undeniable biblical truth that genuine repentance is manifested in a person departing from sin. That's the sign. That's how we know. I tell my children when I'm curious, have, have you really assented to and accepted that what you did out there was sin? And I'm not sure. I'll sometimes tell them, if you have not, we'll likely just be back in here again. So repent. Repent now. If this is not true in your home, don't settle for third-way repentance. For telling your heart, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Confess it to God and to others. Keep yourself and your home from greater fissures and further discipline. And since we're on the topic of discipline, look with me now, now down to verse 18. Zechariah asks a simple question of the angel. I'm sure one that we would all be wondering, were we in his shoes? But it also reveals a deep distrust in the angel's message. He says, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He basically says, don't you know who I am? I'm too old for this. In response, the angel answers by saying something along the lines of, well, you obviously don't know who I am. I'm Gabriel, one of the two angels, only two angels named in the Bible, and likely a high-ranking one in God's divine counsel. He stands right in the presence of Yahweh all the time. Zechariah's unbelief in not trusting the angel's message comes at a price. He's unable to speak for nine months, maybe more. But even with this discipline, God is at work for deeper purposes. The crowd outside begins to worry after his delay in the temple. And when he finally emerges, they can tell that something happened in the holy place. They've, they find out somehow that, oh, he must have had a vision. He must have seen something in there. 
But wouldn't you know it, Zechariah isn't able to tell him about the vision. He didn't know ASL, and writing materials weren't readily available. He tries his attempts at sign language, but verse 22 says, and he remained mute. He couldn't say anything. There's no way for me to communicate this. I can't tell you what just happened in there. And it's a promise. God's sending a child. Yahweh's still gracious. He began speaking again after 400 years. But he can't say anything. He just has to finish his priestly duties and then go back home. I want you to think of Zechariah's silence as both a castigation and confirmation. As both castigation and confirmation. Every day those following months, when he would try to speak, and he couldn't, he was at the same time reminded, I didn't believe Yahweh. And yet, in spite of his unbelief, his silence was confirmation that God was still going to bring him a son. So he went home in silence, ate dinner in silence, worked in his fields in silence. He made love to his wife in silence, watched his child grow in her belly, and when he was unable to say anything, all he could do was smile. He watched with curiosity as she hid herself from the public eye for months, five months in fact, that's verse 24. He wondered at her easy acceptance and praise of the Lord for taking away my disgrace from among people. Verse 25. Even though he had flubbed up, God was still blessing through his discipline. And every time he tried to speak and failed, he could be sure that God was still keeping his promise. Hymn writer William Cowper wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I don't spank other people's kids. I spank my own. And I spank them because they're my own. And I love them. And I spank them because I want what's best for them. This is why God disciplines us, Christ the King. It's because He loves us. You may be going through a season where you feel like God takes you into the timeout room. That's our code language for spankings. And as you go into the timeout room and you receive your discipline from the Lord, you come out, you immediately go back to what you were doing again, and the process starts all over again. And there's probably something in somebody's mind that thinks, does God really enjoy this? Does he relish this? And I would say that he does, but not for some evil, sadistic reason. He knows that with each stroke, you're turning. You're turning. Turning from sin. Turning from folly. Turning from lusts and lies and a licentious heart. And turning into your elder brother, Christ Jesus, with every single stroke. Dads and moms, if you're ever going to get your children all the way from conviction to repentance to victory turn their hearts back to God and to the family, if that's your intention, then discipline has to be more than just about punishment. It's got to be more. It has to communicate your confirmation of your love for them and that they are your child. 
an affirming of their status and your dedication to grow them up into the image of Christ. When you are done, the child should know two things. I belong to him, and he's glad that I'm his son or daughter. I belong to him, and my mommy and daddy are glad that I'm their child. That's what they should know at the end of every discipline session. When I discipline, I remind my children of who they are and what is true, and I cast a vision for a godly life, and I try and limit the number of negative statements, I say. Those are only used to speak of their sin, such as, you may not lie to your sister, or God hates a wrathful spirit, things like that. But everything else is intended to paint a picture of hope for them. You are a Christian, if they are. You have the power to act differently. You will become like Christ through this. I am your proud father, and nothing is going to change that. When Zechariah thought on his silence, which reminded him of his failure, he would have remembered also the angel's words. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which are still going to be fulfilled in their proper time. Now today, a little over 2,000 years from that long-awaited announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, which marked the moment when the Lord would appear, and he began speaking to his people after 400 long years of silence, the true church of Jesus Christ across the world is in a waiting position too. Our king has been away in heaven preparing a place for us. And though he seemed to tarry, before you can blink your eyes, all will be turned to the clouds where he will appear again to tabernacle forever with his people. He did not promise us that we would have no trials. Quite the opposite. If a man is to be holy like Zechariah or a woman as fervent as Elizabeth, she may still have to suffer. He may still have to wait. But let their names remind us again of the heart of our God. God remembers His promises. I'll conclude with a short quote from the esteemed Mr. Ryle. Let us believe, as Zechariah and Elizabeth surely did, that a hand of perfect wisdom is measuring out all our portion. And that when God chastises us, it is to make us partakers of His holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 10. If afflictions, Ryle says, if afflictions drive us nearer to Christ, the Bible, and prayer, they are positive blessings. We may not think so now, but we shall think so when we wake up in another world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your good word, which is able to make us wise for salvation. And I pray, as there are many in this room, doubtless here this morning, include myself, who need to repent, Lord, that you would help us to do it all the way, that you would help us to completely turn from our sin, that that horizontal relationship with you be restored and any vertical relationships that have received damage be completely mended. Oh Lord, would you help our homes to be filled with a spirit of repentance? Lord, we're not asking that our lives be perfect. We know that it won't be in this life. But through the many imperfections of fathers and mothers, 
sons and daughters, of other relatives in the home, through the many sins that happen every day, that we would be quick to turn in repentance. And that in our turning, a sweet way would be prepared for Christ to come and fill our homes afresh. For the Holy Spirit to rush on us and fill our hearts with joy. For the fruits of the Spirit to be abounding in each of us. And we turn and deny ourselves and our ways and we serve one another in love. We pursue Christ and His kingdom in greater and more risky ways. But not for anything in ourselves, but only because you are at work in us. And Lord, we depend fully on you for this. We will act, but we know that no matter how much we plant or water, you must bring the increase. So bring it, Lord. Bring it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.